In the wake of World War I, Congress, in response to the unprecedented number of deaths on foreign soil of U.S. servicemen, voted to erect a memorial to those who died unidentified on the field of battle. Up to 1917, most wars involving the United States were contested in the continental United States. And I say most. We had the wars against the Barbary pirates. And going over the casualty figures for those, you know, two, you know, four people, uh, U.S. servicemen died in those. And so it was not hard to keep track of who died. But like I say, most, most wars were fought by the United States in the United States. The French and Indian War, which took place before the formation of the United States, but just barely, was actually, and I, I, I think I knew this at one time, but was actually not the French and Indian War. It was the American theater of action for the Seven Years' War that was between France and England. They brought their belligerent status across the sea to the United States to, or to the colonies, to continue their war against each other. 3,000 American colonists fell between uh, 1754 and 1763. And if you can do math as well as I can, you see that that was nine years. So why is it the Seven Years' War? I did not look that up. I looked a lot of other stuff up. I have no idea why the Seven Year War was nine years. Nevertheless, those 3,000 casualties were a manageable number to identify and bury it. After all, they were on American soil. The American Revolution, which followed on the heels just a dozen years later, of the French and Indian War claimed 25,000 American lives, and I'm, I'm counting those who died of um, uh, illness also in all the figures I give you. Uh, again, this was fought on American soil. Most of the fallen were identified and buried. The same with the War of 1812, uh, and its battlefield toll of 15,000 soldiers. So you'll see, even though 15,000, 25,000 is a lot, it's not like anything that was to come. The American Civil War claimed the most American lives as both belligerent sides were made up of U.S. citizens. Uh, nearly 700,000 men died. But still, on American soil, and as because they were all Americans, both sides took care to identify and bury the dead. The Spanish-American War was the first large-scale war the U.S. fought on foreign ground, but still with just 2,200 deaths. The identification of these, of those lost, was within the capabilities of the military to handle. And then along came the war to end all wars. World War I, of course. And, of course, it did not end war. It did, however, elevate 
the killing to previously unheard of scale with tanks, with more efficient artillery, with chlorine gas. These all added to the carnage and 116,000 Americans died, many never to be found, uh, and many more who could not be identified. And thus was conceived the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I'm here to tell you that's not the name of the memorial. It has no name. Who knew? We call it the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. A monument to the unidentified soldiers who fell on foreign shores. On the west wall of the tomb, facing the setting sun, is written these words. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Now the tomb of the unknown soldier is guarded at all times, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, but that did not start right away. It started because people were visiting and because the tomb, the granite tomb, was on a high ground in the cemetery. It afforded a great view and people would picnic on top of it. They would bring their lunch and eat on top of the tomb of the unknown soldiers. And therefore, they started guarding the tomb. In 1948, the Third Infantry Regiment, known more famously as the Old Guard, was reconstituted to do ceremonial duties, including guarding of the unknown soldier. The Old Guard was the first infantry regiment that was formed in 1784 at the beginning of the United States. And I know you're dying to ask me, Mike, why is the first and oldest army regiment called the 3rd Infantry Regiment instead of the 1st. And Aaron doesn't want me to tell you that maybe the guy was missing two fingers. <clears throat> but I looked it up, and you know I was going to look it up. The 3rd Infantry Re uh, Regiment was originally named the 1st Infantry Regiment. After the War of 1812, the military decided to renumber all their regiments based on geography and not on and not chronologically. So the third became the first. Uh, a little bit of the first shall be last. Biblical reference. Moving on. We saw in our study in Acts last week that while waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, Paul set to preaching both in the Jewish synagogues and in the marketplace to any and all who would engage him, including the local Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Part of what we covered last week, uh, I'll just refresh you, verses 18 through 21, said, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something to uh, something new. And today's passage continues on. Verse 22 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, when I think of pagan lands, pagan nations, the first thing I think is they're not religious. Paul says here, first off, that that's not true. To me, they're not religious because they're not Christian. And we have a certain way of looking at things. But to those to whom Paul is speaking, they believe themselves to be the religious ones. Paul, with his strange adherence to the worship of only one God at the expense of all the others, is the irreligious one to them. He is the one who is not worshiping properly. It was well attested in the ancient world that the Athenians were the most religious people in the world. Sophocles, in his play from 400 years before, called Oedipus at Colonus, wrote, They say that Athens is the most pious towards the gods. Josephus noted, The Athenians are affirmed by all men to be the most religious of all the Greeks. And the travel writer, Posanius, and believe it or not, he was a travel writer. He was, he was a social commenter. He was a uh, traveler. The first thing that comes up when you look him up was that he was a noted traveler. And he wrote about his travels. He was a travel writer. Okay, So, <clears throat> Posanius, the travel writer, wrote, The Athenians venerate the gods more than any other men. Now, he was writing uh, in the second century AD, so 600 years of attestation to the religiousness of the Athenians really can't be wrong, right? So in verse 22, Paul started off his defense, not really a defense, he wasn't defending himself, his outreach, maybe it was an outreach, missionary effort, whatever you want to call what he's brought before the area of Opagus to do, he starts off in verse 22 and it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
Now his first stroll down an Athens city street was enough to tell him that. Uh, the city was full of temples. Uh, they were lousy with temples, you might say, to the Greek gods. And the streets in front of those were lined with the statues of many more gods than they had temples to. Paul's observation that they were very religious wasn't necessarily a compliment, however. Religious, the word religious in the Greek language carried as many ambiguities as ours does now. We can say that somebody's does something religiously. We can say, oh, they're, they're just full of religion. Or we can say that the Mormons, I won't go there. Just trust me, there's ambivalence. What he, when he said that you are very religious, the words in Greek could have meant you're very superstitious. Okay? Same wording and we don't really know which one he used because the phrase is the same. I have written down here, saying Muslims are very religious is not necessarily a compliment. A uh, 5th century B.C. Athenian politician and general, and I've told you before, the, the major figures in Athens and Rome would often be a politician and a military man and a philosopher. Well, this uh, Athenian politician in general said it this way to his fellow citizens. You are the best people at being deceived by something new being said. Okay, even 500 years before Christ, it was said you were the best people at being deceived by something new being said. Verse 29, 23a reads, Paul speaking again, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, the Athenians did not deny the existence of God, as so many of our neo-pagans of today do. They really don't want a God today. And they deny that there is such a thing of God. To the Greek mind, however, the existence of God, or as they thought, uh, gods, was evident to anyone with eyes. What the theologians call the cosmological argument, which shows up in Psalm 19.1, uh, who puts it like this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. The Athenians could see the workings of God in their world, so they were not against this type of argument. It's just that they did not know their unknown God. So unlike in City and Antioch, and look at how, how Paul starts off his argument here. He's talking about their gods and what he sees in theirs. In City and Antioch, Paul began by addressing Jewish history and quoting Hebrew scripture. But in line with his statement 
later on in his epistles that he tries to be all things to all people, here he goes straight to the Athenians' love of the gods and of religion. Because arguing from scriptures they did not know of a people that they held in contempt, they were not big on Jews in Athens, there were Jews, but they were not big on them, arguing from their Jewish scriptures was not going to get him very far. It was not a winning strategy in dealing with these people. But seeing the altar with the inscription to the unknown God, which, by the way, ancient historians had noted, except they noted it in the plural. There were more than one. Paul only might have only seen one, but there were more than one. Nobody knows quite how many. More than one altar to the unknown God on the streets of Athens. So this gave him the perfect segue into his preaching on the one true God, the creator of everything, which is what he's going to be preaching to them. Paul continues in 23b, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, there has probably been no other man in history more prepared to bring the gospel to the collection of civic leaders, um, philosophers, uh, judicial people that were gathered there in the area of to hear him. Paul was steeped in philosophy himself as a Jewish rabbi would be. As such, he was also trained in rhetoric. We can see that from all of Acts. We can see it from his epistles. How trained he was in the use of language and rhetoric. We also see from all of this that he was trained not just in rhetoric, but in debate, in formal classical debate, taking the point of his opponent or his listener and using it to illustrate his own point. But the topping on Paul's training was his instruction in Christianity by Jesus himself in those years that he spent in the wilderness talking walking with the very God he was about to introduce them to. So everything that he got from Jesus in instruction is going to be used with this outreach to the pagan Athenians. In mentioning the altar to an unknown God, Paul takes what it what was a monument to polytheism, okay? Because this altar wasn't saying there is one God, but he's unknown to us. They had hundreds of gods, and what they were saying was, we might have missed one. There might be one more. Paul takes that opening to say that you think there are many gods, but the one God you have missed is the one God that matters. He turns this altar into a signpost of monotheism, as one of the commenters I was reading said. A signpost to the one true God. And 
verses 24 through 25, which I'm going to cover more on next week, says, The God who made this world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And, you know, they, they, the Athenians had all of these temples to all of their gods. But even they knew from way back, time, hundreds of years before, that those were unnecessary. This teaching that Paul gave about the one true God who made the world and everything in it, so plain to us, ran counter, however, to everything the Athenians believed. We'll get to what they agreed with in just a second. But the Epicurean philosophy, and he's talking to Epicurean philosophers here, Epicurean philosophy thought that all matter was eternal. It had no beginning. It would have no end. Therefore, there was no God who created this matter that the, that the Epicureans saw all around them. I do not know where they think it came from, but they didn't think it was from God. And Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, uh, were pantheistic. Everything was a part of God. We hear that, one with the universe. As such, God could not have created himself. So we've got two things. One is that matter is eternal. God can't have created matter then. The other is God. Everything is part of God. Matter is part of God. Therefore, God could not have created himself. John MacArthur points out that the idea of a creator God is just as unpopular in our world today that today's pagans see the explanation for the origin of all things as evolution. Okay, and we're... The Greeks did not have an explanation for what they were seeing. And so if the answer to everything today from the neo-pagans is evolution, you would ask, and it is asked, evolution from what? Exactly. Uh, Nothing. And if evolution comes from something, where did that something come from? Doesn't something require a creator? Now, some of what Paul taught here has parallels in Greek thought. God, the gods, could not be contained in a temple. Uh, Euripides, 450 years before, had written a play with the line that a house made by craftsmen could not hold the divine form. So, a house made by hands cannot house a god that a god had no need of anything from men was also expressed in his play Heracles. He wrote, God is in need of nothing. And these things are true. But even if he touched on 
themes popular among some Greeks, Paul's approach was thoroughly rooted in Old Testament thought. One commenter says that Paul's message was that human hands do not serve God since God needs nothing from humanity and gives humanity life, breath, and as Paul said, everything needed for that life. God's grace in creation is Paul's point. Now this is what we've looked at today is just the beginning of the teaching that Paul is about to give the Athenians about this unknown God who made everything. He will go on in his message, as we'll see next week, to say that they had been ignorant to that point about who exactly that God was. They had not... And this is important, you know, I, I, I've thought about this in, in theology. They had not been judged accountable, and this is in Jewish teaching. They were not accountable for that which they did not know. They did not know about God. They were not held to the worship of the Jews for God. God did not judge them the same way because they were ignorant. And as we all know, ignorant does not mean stupid. It means you do not have the knowledge Um, Paul however having preached to them of God the creator with that preaching knowledge has come to the Greeks and with it judgment and accountability because God is no longer unknown what Paul has delivered is knowledge of God and the judgment of God. What happens when the unknown becomes known? Okay? What happens when that happens? I say judgment came here. You might not know this. We're, we're getting back to the tomb of the unknown soldier. This happened with the tomb of the unknown soldier. After the Korean War, It was decided to honor the unknown dead from World War II and Korea by interring a soldier from each one of those wars at the monument that was created for the World War I dead. That was done, and so far so good. But at the end of the Vietnam War, the same decision was made, and the remains of an airman was pulled from the wreckage of a plane And he was without identification. And he was selected for burial there in 1984. Well, you know, forensics have come a long way since then. And 10 years later, a uh, MIA POW activist became convinced the remains of that Vietnam soldier were those of a man shot down over An Loc, Vietnam in 1972, and subsequent investigation proved him right. And in 1998, his family claimed him. He was not unknown. He was claimed, and he was brought back to the family's hometown in Missouri and buried in a national cemetery there. He was known. He was not unknown. His crypt at the tomb of the unknown soldier 
remains empty to this day. 25 years later, they never did anything with it. The description on that memorial, that here rests in honor, in honor, glory, an American soldier known but to God, speaks a truth that applies to all mankind. We are all known by God. Okay? Even if you die and no one's around, you are known by God. You are not unknown. All of us, no matter how anonymous we feel we are, we were created by God who fitted us together in our mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully. We were created not only to be known by God, but to know Him as well. God did not want to be the unknown God, just as we don't want to be the unknown person. To that end, He has commissioned us, His servants, to take His message to the ends of the earth making disciples of all the nations. This is what we see the Apostle Paul doing in the biggest bastion of false god worship in the world, Athens, Greece. He has taken the knowledge of God to people who could not see. The message he brought to them of the unknown God, creator of everything, seemed foolish to them. Okay, Because the story he brought them of this all-powerful God, well, that all-powerful God entered the world as a baby and then was a child. He lived a perfect life to redeem his people. And then he was crucified as a murderer and buried in a tomb. And this was all folly to them, bordering on madness, the tomb of the unknown God. You know, he, nobody knew he was God. But of course, that's not where this story ends. Because Jesus left the tomb. And he left it alive. And this life promises life to all that know him. Psalm 8, 17 says... I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. And though they didn't know what they were looking for, the Athenians were diligently searching for God. And their search was honored by God, who says, if you diligently seek me, you will find me, because God sent Paul with the knowledge of the unknown God who left the tomb. And you know, to this day, it's the unknown tomb now. We know who Jesus is. We know who God is. It's the tomb. We don't know where it is. Because he has left it and it did not matter anymore where it was. Because we're not looking to honor the memory of him in the tomb. We are looking to honor him, the living God with our lives. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we...
give you great thanks that you have sought us out since the beginning of before the beginning of the world that you have created us to be your people that you saw fit to call us and have us call upon you to be our savior and lord we we know we don't deserve it and there's no pride inherent in us that we have called upon you because you have first called us Lord, we pray this prayer for all who are searching you, that you will call them by name and make them your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.